The year 1953, a plane touches down at Smithies Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. Hey there, this is Josh Ersam and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is on Spectrum and their number one smash hit, I'll Be Gone. Our special guest is Spectrum's Mike Rudd. Spectrum formed in Melbourne in 1969, with Mike Rudd providing vocals, guitar and harmonica, Bill Putt on bass, drummer Mark Kennedy and Lee Neal on keyboard. Rudd was born in New Zealand and grew up in Christchurch, and before anyone claims this should exclude Spectrum from the awesome Aussie songs format, never fear, Puck, Kennedy and Neal are all bona fide Aussies, making Spectrum dinky die. I'm I'm the only Kiwi. Yeah, the rest are legit. (laughs) They can stay. Mike's first band in New Zealand was called The Chant, and they formed in Christchurch in 1964. The band I had, The Chance, C-H-A-N-T-S, The Chance, um, they, uh, we, we virtually had a residency that lasted um, for just about our entire career. So we were th- at the same gig for two years without any other gigs, and so we didn't really hear anything else. There was a, a band... Um, down the road called um, uh, 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 the Castaways, um, and I used to see them every now and again. They were they were kind of interesting, um, but the most interesting band that I came across was Max Merritt when he came back to Christchurch. As we spoke about in the recent episode on the Atlantics, the UK band The Shadows ruled the roost, and across the ditch in New Zealand, it was no different. I guess originally it was like everybody else with um, The Shadows. Um, they every, every band in Christchurch was a Shadows band playing Shadows instrumentals. Um, and we were one of those when we first started, but we also played a few other other things. But when the Beatles happened, of course, um, we, um, we got into that and then evolved um, from there into the Rolling Stones. Um, and then... It, Myself and the drummer Trevor Courtney, we were had a direct line to the UK, so we were getting the the latest things out of the UK. So all our influences were basically English bands, so um, the Kinks, uh, Manfred Mann, and uh, and all those bands sort of followed those first two bands, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. The Chance won the Battle of the Bands at Arlington Showgrounds in 1964, and they started to gain a solid reputation around Christchurch. 
with the chance we were we were a cover band, but we the term didn't even exist then. The the term cover band didn't even exist. Um, we were we were kind of different in that we didn't um, actually go to try and sound like the original song. We just did it, and it came out sounding like our song anyway. Um, so I guess that was kind of an interesting thing to do. Uh, you look at the Rolling Stones, they did um, some interesting covers when they were first starting, and uh, they were a very good, uh, very good um, band at arranging things, like uh, Route 66 was really a little jazz song before they got to it, and they turned it into a really pumping kind of rock and roll song. But, um, yeah, no, look, we recorded a couple of tunes. Um, we were also into um, – that soul music thing, Otis Redding, we really loved Otis Redding. So the first single that we produced in Christchurch was I've Been Loving You Too Long to Stop Now in brackets <laughs> by Otis Redding. I've been loving you too long Can't stop now And we had a B-side, uh, which we wrote. I have no memory of writing it, but I think it was probably between me and, and Trevor Courtney um, and, the, and the rest of the band. Well, the, um, the lead guitarist, who was a pretty jazzy kind of lead guitarist, but he built his own slide guitar. And um, it, the, the song that we wrote was called I Want Her, which was just it's really quite difficult to listen to. Um, it, it makes you feel seasick to listen to it. Um, and and that was a really a original, original. But uh, we didn't really set much store about uh, being original at, this, at that stage whatsoever. Look out! 
Mike's first link with Australian music came when a new member joined the chant. The guitarist I was referring to decided to drop out and uh, he was replaced by an Australian uh, who regaled under the name of Max Kelly. They had a band called the Kelly Gang and he was the fastest guitarist I'd ever heard at that stage. So that was great. You're in the band. So eventually we discovered um, that by the turn of events, that he was actually um, uh, in the Australian Air Force. Well, not exactly in the Australian Air Force. He was an apprentice working for the Australian Air Force and he was just on leave when he came over to New Zealand and he'd overstayed his leave. So his mum, his mum sicked the police onto him and the first thing we knew about it was that the police came and took him away and sent him back to, to Australia. So... At that point, I thought, well, I think we should go to Australia. This, we can we can leave out um, Wellington and Auckland, although we had actually been to Wellington at that stage to record a few tunes, and um, but Auckland was the place to be. But we decided, well, we'll just go straight to Australia, and ended up in Melbourne. The Chan relocated to Melbourne in 1966, but found the going a lot tougher than back home in New Zealand. They were making some headway, but ultimately the band imploded about six months after arriving in Australia. Yeah, well, the um, that was uh, partly because we'd had so, such an easy ride um, with our residency because we could just do anything we felt like, which we did, and we had an audience that was there every week and they knew what we were doing or didn't know exactly what we were doing, but they knew mostly what we were doing. And... And then to take us out of that environment was really kind of kind of scary for me, I remember, um, you know, because we were playing to people that never heard anything that uh, that we'd done before or although we did share some of our repertoire with the Wild Cherries and so forth. So um, they were doing the kind of bluesy kind of stuff that we were doing, British blues stuff, uh, John Mayle and Eric Clapton and so forth. Um but uh, yeah, no, we we it was a real struggle for us. We did a couple of TV shows, and that was virtually the end of it. Um, we just kind of, as you say, imploded, and and I was left with with nothing. Mike would spend time playing alongside Ross Wilson and Ross Hennifer in the band Party Machine. This was prior to the two Rosses forming Daddy Cool. Mike would also play in Wilson's other band of the time, Sons of the Vegetable Mother. If you haven't already, check out episode 14 on Daddy Cool and their classic Eagle Rock. With Ross Wilson deciding to head to the UK, Mike again found himself without a band. However, this time he decided to form his own band and Spectrum was born. Party Machine had uh, broken up with Ross going over to the UK and I had no band, but I thought, well, maybe, I mean, I really enjoyed playing with the Party Machine and 
And by the time it finished, we were doing, you know, 80% of Ross's songs. So I thought, well, maybe I'll put a band together based around my songs. Only, only trouble is I haven't written any. So the first song that I wrote actually was I'll Be Gone, which um, stated the position very succinctly, someday I'll have money. <laughs> maybe, never. And um, and then w- when the the band started coming together, I started getting guys together. That was one of the first songs that we worked on and we ended up by doing a demo of it. But it was kind of different from the, the one that we ended up recording for the single because um, it was uh, – I, I was playing guitar. It was the principal difference. I didn't have harmonica in it. And uh, as you would probably no doubt, no doubt – um, Guess that uh, re- the the pivotal instrument in the in the version that became the hit was, is the harmonica. So um, it was quite different, but um, it was uh, and we we submitted it to to EMI, but they rejected it. And understandably, the first version wasn't wasn't the version that became a hit. The original demo for "I'll Be Gone" would turn out to be quite different to the song we now know and love. I was playing guitar, which was kind of a folky, in a in a Tyrolean sort of way, um, guitar line, and you know, no harmonica. And there were there were kind of odd heavy metal breaks in it. It was a real mishmash of stuff. Here's the first incarnation of "I'll Be Gone."
Spectrum cut their teeth playing gigs around Melbourne? We uh, we had no recording um, to back us up at the start, uh, although we did record "I'll Be Gone" fairly early on. But no, we didn't have a we didn't have an album or anything. But if you came along to listen to Spectrum, you you go, well, I haven't heard anything that they're doing, and they're doing all these songs that go between five and fifteen minutes. What's going on? Um, but we were, we were kind of lucky that we got well um, residencies again, if you like, at um, at the Knight Brothers venues, the um, Birdies and Sebastians. We sort of toggled back and forth between those two gigs, and then eventually, um, after the recordings were actually recorded and released, um, we got the the TF Much Ballroom, and and then the Much More Ballrooms. They were kind of um, teamed up with our with our agent, agency at the time, so yeah, it was um, we we kind of lucky um, at the start there. When sitting down to write "I'll Be Gone," Mike struck lyrical gold, and it was his lack of cash that would help him to write one of the all-time classic lines. Someday. And at the time, um, my my uh, gig with uh, the party machine had finished. Um, my wife and I had moved houses, and, and I'd quit my job at the um, Namco Furniture Factory in Port Melbourne, and I had no income whatsoever. So money was foremost in my mind, or the lack of it, and that was the you know, the honest the situation that I was confronted with. That. I outlined on the song. After deciding to try his hand at this songwriting caper, what came first, the music or the lyrics? Uh, eh, 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 eh. Well, it was probably a tie, which is very useful. I, I find it very difficult to to write lyrics after you've written the song, or you know, come up with a, an arrangement of a song. But um, that's the way it happens mostly, as I come up with a musical idea and then add the words later which is a pain, but because if you've got the words, then the song actually comes pretty easy. Thankfully for Spectrum, one day at rehearsals, the iconic harmonica line for I'll Be Gone magically appeared. Yeah, look, it probably happened at our, one of our rehearsals um, with, at our keyboard player's place in, in East Doncaster. I, I, I believe that's probably when it happened. And I said, damn it. I'll try the harmonica, and so um, and that immediately worked. And 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 when we were playing live, that song became the most sort of favoured song in our set. So it, we we knew by the time we got round to recording it that it was probably the most commercial song that we had. The sound of Mike playing harmonica on "I'll Be Gone" is instantly recognisable.
it's an immediate hook that the the very first you know notes of the of the song are a, a nice hook and look i was really uh, knocked out when there were other versions done of the song and and you know billy thorpe for instance he he did a version i don't know whether it actually came out on anything but he did um, i've seen a few live versions of it with him playing harmonica there was there was actually one situation where there was a um Tsunami Relief Concert at the Maya Music Bowl. Um, this is the Jap- uh, Thai yeah, Tsunami. And um, Billy Thorpe actually rang me and said, look, would you and Bill come and, and play the song with me because um, I do the the opening line on harmonica. But he said, you could do it a lot better. So uh, we we turned up at the at the Maya Music Bowl, and he said, you stay off stage, and then um, when I start it, you interrupt and do the, the line properly and then come out on stage, which we did. And uh, it went down really well, and, and and Billy was thrilled. But unbeknownst to us, our drummer was in the audience, <laughs> and he was utterly dismayed that we'd done the gig without him. When entering the studio to record, Spectrum had no intention of recording I'll Be Gone. Well, the, the actual recording wasn't for, for I'll Be Gone. It was for Launching Place Parts 1 and 2. And Launching Place was a um, a mooted festival uh, at a place called Launching Place, not far from where I live now. And uh, I, th- I thought, oh, well, this would be a good way to get in the studio because um, it was our agency that, that was organising the, the, um, the festival very early days of festivals. And so I wrote this kind of idea of what I thought a festival would be. Um, and there was an instrumental part one and then there was the song part two. And we recorded those and Howard Gable, the um, the producer, looked at us a little bit panicky and said, have you got anything else? And I thought, well, yeah, of course, we got I'll Be Gone. So I said, yeah, we'll do that. And we basically did it in one take and overdubbed the the piano line at the end, and that was it. So it probably took um, 15 minutes to record. Once he heard I'll Be Gone, the panicked look on producer Howard Gable's face quickly disappeared. I think he was happy with that, yeah. No, he he just arrived over from New Zealand where he had, um, you know, he was probably the number one producer over there, and he recognised instantly that that was it. Uh, the the song. Now that I'll Be Gone had been recorded, it wasn't a case of instant success. Due to the radio band going on, I'll Be Gone sat on a shelf for six months, gathering dust, before it was finally released in January 1971. And so we eventually did record it um, in the version that we know, um, but then there was a, a, a radio strike, a radio ban, if you like, uh, where the... Um, Radio stations were refusing to play uh, songs that had been recorded on major labels, such as EMI, our label. So that lasted for six months and actually held up the release of the single for six months. So by the time the single came out, I think we might have even recorded the album. As Mike mentioned, during the period of the radio ban, Spectrum went back into the studio and recorded their debut album, Spectrum Part 1. Unlike the commercial sound of I'll Be Gone, 
the album highlighted Spectrum's progressive rock sensibilities. At this stage, I'll Be Gone hadn't been released, so they had no idea they had a mega hit on their hands, and decided not to include the song on the album. Over the years, there's been much conjecture as to why Spectrum didn't include their biggest hit on their debut album, and on the surface, it does seem a little strange. However, as Mike says, at that stage, nobody knew what the future held for I'll Be Gone. Spectrum Part 1 would reach a high of number 10 on the national album charts. I don't remember the exact timing of it, but in any case, um, I was asked um, whether we should put I'll Be Gone on it, and I said no, because... um, the rest of the album was was five tunes, so they were all pretty pretty long tunes. And I thought, well, having a um, a short, sharp uh, single on it is just not going to match the rest of the material. So, and uh, EMI agreed, the idiots, and, and <laughs> and so. But but there was another point as well. I mean, if if I'll be gone had been a hit which it became, and people bought the album on the strength of that hit, there's nothing else like it on the album. So I thought, well, that's a bit of a swizz, um, and it happened quite often, of course. But I, don't, I didn't want to be party to that. That was another reason. But there's actually no good reason for not putting a hit record on the album. Now that the radio band was a thing of the past, I'll Be Gone was released as a single, and it quickly raced up the charts, hitting the coveted number one spot, and it stayed in the charts for 20 weeks. Oh yeah, it was. Um, it, it sort of went up in, in different sort of speeds in different states, and, and we were very lucky to have had um, the film clip made for it. Uh, that I'm sure helped its progress no end. And um, yes, it was a thrill. The, the mind you, as I as I mentioned, it was six months before it was actually played after we'd recorded it so it was a real surprise and we were in Sydney at the time um, at, a, at a venue called Caesars Palace which was very sort of American R&R like everything was in Sydney in those days and and then we heard um, I think it was on 2SM we heard it played on 2SM and that was just we were just so shocked to hear it on radio and um, and then we started hearing it on radio over and over again. It was a thrill every time. All of a sudden, Spectrum now had a national profile. In those days, you didn't. Um, it was only gigs that gave you money, and of course, um, being uh, closely aligned on in the same agency as Daddy Cool. Well, we we did a, a big nationwide tour with them, um, the Aquarius tour, which was great fun. And uh, so that that helped our notoriety around the country and uh, we got a national profile and um, it was great. Yeah, and the, probably uh, <laughs> the, the funniest thing actually happened in Adelaide where we were booked on the, on the Ernie Sigley show and we did a, a, run-through, on the, a run-through of the show. He did a Tonight Show. Um, we did a run-through in the afternoon and he said, right, well, we're going to hire you suits so you can wear tonight we said no we're not wearing suits and and so they threw us off the show um well that actually made headlines all around the country so it was a good move on everybody's part i reckon teeny bopper fans would turn up to see spectrum play their number one hit however the band stayed true to themselves playing their longer songs and never swaying from their prog rock leanings of course and uh, we still managed to get away with doing our other stuff 
i.e. shit. We did, we did that as well, which, you know, the audience was going, yeah, yeah, come on, play the song, play the song. And eventually, of course, we did, and um, they went apeshit. Spectrum's true sound was the exact opposite to a three-minute pop song. Oh, indeed. Um, the, uh, the agency that we worked for, Let It Be, was sort of built around you know, that sort of progressive, if you like, that was another term that wasn't invented in those days, um, progressive and interesting music that was going on, Mackenzie Theory ourselves, Daddy Cool to a certain extent as well. Um, uh, the first incarnation of Daddy Cool was a band called Sons of the Vegetal Mother, and I was involved with that as well. And that was, you know, that was the definition of progressive uh, rock and roll in those days. But, uh, yeah, look, I think we had a, a hippie audience, you know, in the centre of town, uh, you know, the, the Carlton's and all those kind of inner city areas, and and with the TF Much Ballrooms, which the agency devised, we invited people in from the outer suburbs um, to you know partake of that hippie ideal, um, and yeah, so there were, we could get away with just about anything in those days. It was. It was uh, great fun. The B-side to I'll Be Gone was Launching Place Part 2. Spectrum released their second album miles ago in January 1972. Prior to the recording of this double album, drummer Mark Kennedy left the band and he was replaced by Ray Arnett. Well, miles ago was interesting because it was probably one of the very early double albums. Uh, We just got to a stage where we had too many songs for one album and uh, and Howard Gable said, well, well, let's just keep going. Um, But we actually didn't... (laughs) We didn't have enough songs for two albums, but um, we we uh, got inventive in the studio, which was unusual for us. We just we just replicated what we did live normally, and we were a good recording proposition because of that. We didn't spend a lot of time in the studio. We just basically played 
what we played live. But uh, we did some inventive things uh, in the studio and played around with with instruments that were sitting around the studio, like timpanis and clavinets and things. Um, so in any case, th- there was the basis there of uh, a bit of uh, a bit of a, a double sort of pers- personality because there was there were short songs they were, they weren't um, they weren't particularly um, commercial because they were short because they, they were often very rude uh, songs uh, and there were long songs mixed together so that sowed the seeds for the next kind of outfit because we got to a point where we were doing gigs. Uh, with Daddy Cool, and, and they were just ripping the audience up, and and we were being, um, you know, get off because we want to see Daddy Cool, and so I thought, well, we've got to do something about this. So I invented um, the name, the indelible Mertzeps, which Mertzeps being spectrum back to front, and and we just concentrated on the on the short, um, danceable material that was on. You know, it was basically on. Uh, on the Miles Ago album, but all mixed up with the longer tunes. As Mike just mentioned, Spectrum had an alter ego, the indelible Mertzeps, and it's as the Mertzeps that they would play the party tunes while still being able to continue with Spectrum and play the more intricate prog rock songs. Uh, that that is genuinely one of those light bulb moments. We were we were playing at uh, Melbourne University uh, in the Buffeteria with Daddy Cool, and I was looking at them going, "Come on, the audience was just." dancing their heads off, and I thought, well, this is no good. And the, the addition to that was that gigs were opening up, but they were pub gigs, and Spectrum just wasn't suited to pub gigs at all um, because it was always beer o'clock, and uh, people couldn't concentrate on listening to the longer stuff that we used to do at the ballroom and Birdies and Sebastian. So... It was uh, there was a definite need for something to happen, and Mertzeps was my response to that, and that was at the the Melbourne Uni Buffeteria, and um, yeah, the Mertzeps came up, and the indelible part was basically you can't rub us out, we'll we'll come back in another form. The band even recorded as the indelible Mertzeps, releasing the fantastically named album "What's Up Your Nose" in 1973, and made it to number twelve on the album charts. Their highest charting single as the Mertzeps was Esmeralda, and it reached number 38. It peaked higher in Melbourne, making it the top 20. When you play your little game oh, oh, oh. 
There's been some pretty quirkily named albums over the time, and What's Up Your Nose has to rank amongst the best of them. Here's how the album's title came about. Our second town was Adelaide, still is basically, and Adelaide's water at that particular point was, you know, disgusting. And you just really wouldn't want to drink it. And it was so bad that even if you boiled it and had a cup of tea, it still tasted foul. And the publicity machine for the Adelaide, well, for the South Australian government, um, actually struck back with a newspaper newspaper article uh, saying there's nothing really that wrong with Australian South Australian water, but um, please... Uh, it's probably a good idea not to get it up your nose because you might end up with warts. And I thought, well, okay, there's an obvious <laughs> there's an obvious album title there. That's how it came about. Mike and Ross Wilson's long friendship has seen their careers intertwine over the years. Both hold the distinction of being songwriters with a number one hit to their name. Ross and I have had kind of parallel careers in many ways, Ross Wilson that is, Um but of course, he's the he's the rich cousin, and, <laughs> and I'm the poor cousin because I had the one hit uh, immediately, and then have gradually subsided into obscurity ever since. Well, he's been really quite kind of successful. He's a great guy. He he's um, he's supported me throughout this by um, offering me guest appearances with the Mondos and so forth. After making the move to Australia in 1966. Mike has carved out his own career, and thanks to the little gem of a song called I'll Be Gone, Spectrum's place in Australian music history is assured. Well, it's, uh, it's amazing because, you know, when you, when you start off in a band, um, you don't really think about what's going to happen. Um, a few years into being in Spectrum, of course, the, we had lineup changes and then eventually the band broke up. And you, it, I came to believe that there would be a, a life expectancy of about four years with a with any particular lineup, unless something brilliant happened. And we were kind of lucky because we started off with our first song being a hit, so that was amazing. Spectrum had another lineup change in late 1972, with Lee Neal being replaced by John Mills. In April 1973, Spectrum decided to call it a day and release their third studio album, Testimony, which reached number 12 on the national charts. About six months after the band broke up, EMI released the double live album Terminal Buzz. Mike and Bill Putt's next musical venture was Ariel, and we'll have a future episode on this successful band down the track. Sadly, Bill passed away in 2013. However, Mike keeps their vast catalogue of music alive and is still geeking about the place. Now, I know I've said to check out a few other episodes of the podcast already, and yes, while we do need the extra downloads, they're all relevant to Spectrum's story. We have already released another episode on Spectrum. It's episode 47, and it's on the song Xavier Rudd is Not My Son. So check that one out as well. It's a fun song, and it's sure to give you a laugh. Okay, that's enough of the talk. Here's I'll Be Gone by Spectrum. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. Thanks to Mike for your time, and thanks to Spectrum for the music. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions, written and produced by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl! Just stop.